0: I'm Charlie Swenson. Um, This is the podcast to Hell and Back. Uh, You know, it's like the 65th or 70th one, amazingly. Uh, It's January 16th, 2020, and uh, it's six o'clock in in the Eastern time zone. Um, And uh, we have a really cool thing we're going to do these, I mean, at least my idea of cool. Uh, for these next three meetings today, next week, and the following week, and in just a second i 'm going to introduce my mm, colleague and friend seth axelrod and and then get into a conversation with him that 's going to go basically three hours. Um, I have so many questions that really I should have made it six hours about <laughs> about it, but we 'll see three hours is pretty good um, let me let me uh, say the context of this, because I realized as I got ready to do this that this this is about the sixth interview out of all of my podcasts. So it's a subset of my podcasts that have a special quality to them. Um, the first one was Domingo Marquez who, was, who suffered through or struggled through and very skillfully the hurricane in Puerto Rico in September of 2017. Uh, I had one, and that went for a couple sessions. I had uh, two or three sessions with Cedar Coons, DBT expert, mindfulness expert, who talked with us about having lost her sister to suicide and how she coped with that and how she used mindfulness and other DBT skills for that. I interviewed Melanie Harned for three hours. Uh, not about her own personal experience so much as uh, the experience of people with trauma and PTSD and how to help that what are the how to do that what are the principles uh, I interviewed andrea Rosenhaft for three hours andrea had has coped for a long time with borderline personality disorder in all of its various forms and with different treatments for it including dBT but also transference focused psychotherapy it was a sort of an incredibly instructive things she had to say. Um, I interviewed Natalia Garcia, uh, who at the time was a uh, an intern or a psychology grad student uh, from Puerto Rico. And by coincidence on the same night as the hurricane in, in September of 2017, that uh, her, her two-year-old son unexpectedly died in the night. Uh, and so she talked seven months later with us for a couple hours about how she coped with that, and how she used things in DBT including exposure strategies like acting opposite her emotions in order to not avoid stuff that would remind her of her child uh, incredibly helpful inspiring so these i these things sit inside me, having gone through them, and I think some of you who listen as instructive things so Basically, what am I up to with all of these? I'm up to the, a, a, a deep interest within myself that then takes over in these things of how do people get through uh, adversity, uh, hurricanes, deaths, diagnoses, uh, all these things. Uh, how do people get knocked down and then stand up again? How do they go on? when other people might stop, and and within that set of questions that I've always had from the time I was a boy, I think, is the question more in my adult life of what is DBT as a vocabulary, as a dictionary essentially of tools for coping with distress and emotional dysregulation, what does it bring to bear even if you're not in treatment, but just in your own life when you run into adversity that's knocking you down? So that's really what these are about. And you know, that brings me around towards the one that we're gonna do now because Seth Axelrod, first of all, is an esteemed colleague and a kind of a new friend for me. I've known him for a long time from a distance. But this has created an opportunity for me to begin to talk with Seth and just feel like there's a lot of things in common, a lot of sense of immediate connection. But Seth is a uh, is the director of DBT. cert he's a he's a uh, he's a clinical psychologist, a PhD, an associate professor at Yale University. Uh, is it School of Medicine? Is it yeah. is it within the medical school that you're a professor, associate professor? Yes. Yeah. And he runs DBT services there, different programs. He has run conferences for a long time there every year with uh, Perry Hoffman and BPD uh, about borderline personality disorder that bring together uh, experts and, and professionals and researchers with family members and with clients uh, who, who struggle through these things in an extraordinary kind of thing. I was at one of them. I wish I had been at more. I, I, I said some things at one of them and watched the rest of it. Um, so he's done that. He, and he's been for many years a trainer and consultant through behavioral tech uh, in, in DBT training in lots of places. Um, so Seth has all of that to his name and all of that would be enough to bring him to this interview and this conversation. However, uh, he also, for six years, has contended with a uh, cancer diagnosis and the um, manifestations of cancer and the consequences of cancer and the treatments of cancer and and the complications of that in his life, his personal life, his family life, his professional life, um, and he's still going. And it and you know as cancers go, as as he'll probably tell us a little more about this. He has a bad cancer. He has a cancer that. Um, he wouldn't have necessarily thought he'd be alive at this point. And he's still dealing with it. Uh, I'll let him decide within his own personal limits how much he wants to say about that. But, But it's still going on. He's still right up to this week. He's still dealing with it. He's still making decisions about it. He's still coping with the manifestations and the uncertainty of it all. And so, you know, who better to talk to a DBT expert who's coping with sort of like a hurricane that started from within, um, and that really is uh, is frightening just to hear, but then to hear about it, you know, the details. The whole thing as a big thing, and I have lots of questions about this, just coping with the fact that you now know you have cancer when you've never known that before, like that's like a huge life transition, but then actually having it, and telling one's family, and telling one's spouse, and telling one's colleagues, and supervisees, and telling one's clients at whenever you need to it's like oh my god i mean just back these things up so that's what we're going to talk about for three hours that's why we've given ourselves three hours because there's a lot to talk about and i've had to think about you know so that's that's seth in a uh, (laughs) a nutshell and uh and and just to get started and i have some prompting sort of ideas and questions just to get started but actually the way these things go if you've tuned into any of these interviews. I don't have no idea where we're gonna end up. Um, I really don't. So it's just sort of some, what I'll call base camps, actually questions, that, but we're gonna wander if in the, into the woods from each base camp and see what we get to. And I'm, I'm gonna be interested all the way along in uh, how Seth has applied uh, DBT principles, uh, strategies and skills, as well as other things uh, to cope with this uh with this and how how is he using because i think this could be of interest way way beyond people who are listening in who have cancer or or are close to someone who have cancer because it's also just how do you apply mindfulness to adversity how do you apply wise mind to adversity how do you apply radical acceptance from dbt one of the biggest skills to adversity and how do you apply tolerating distress with crisis survival strategies to this and how do you apply coping ahead and all these other things that when you open up DBT's toolbox it kind of goes on and on and on so we'll get into whatever we can get into so Seth welcome um, I'm so appreciative that you're willing to join us uh,
1: Thank You Charlie I, I'd like to say I'm uh, I'm filled with gratitude for the opportunity to uh, do this I so appreciate what you do with the podcast and I really appreciate your invitation and um, uh, my I've thought for a long time I, I often think about how much to share and when to share and in some ways I've been extremely open in other ways a lot of most often people don't know what's happening with me and um, I'm really uh, I'm really looking forward to this challenge of of sorting through this in this kind of personal way with you and i'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds um i've I've been reflecting a lot since i talked to you originally about this possibility and then you invited me and my mind just keeps going in different directions of things that could Mm. be discussed and so i'm I'm Mm. kind of looking forward to, to um sharing and also uh i appreciate your um leading us through the things that strike you as we kind of go uh, you sure. know, through this. Uh, but everything you yeah. said, uh, I connect with. You know, it, it, you, you, uh, uh, the introduction I really appreciate because I think it really captured the experience of, of, mm. of that, of um, using these principles, using other things, trying to draw from them. And, um, and my hope that this does uh, offer something To people not only what you said not only for cancer but in general um uh, one thing i shared with you uh, that for years before i had this diagnosis uh, and i was uh practicing dbt and teaching these skills and one thing i would say is that this is a toolkit these are tools to deal with whatever life sends you and and now here i am and and when the diagnosis came that was my that was what occurred to me almost immediately was okay, now I can put my money where my mouth is. What am I going to do? Mm. And mm. I went to my skills. Was a starting point.
0: You're all, already the first thing I was going to ask is what prompted you to actually be willing to come on. It's different to talk to somebody you know about what's going on with you than to get on a podcast. As I've learned, I'm talking and I have no idea who's listening now, who's going to listen next week, who's going to listen next year. It's a weird multi-tiered audience that you can't see. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's a challenge to then say say personal things. So actually, there's many ways to do it. But the fact that you and I can talk to each other is one of the answers to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little terrifying, you know, this idea of kind of sharing in this way. And um, on the other hand, when you have something like cancer, it, it's kind of this bombshell that people get hit with. You know, when you meet someone, someone doesn't know, and it's like, oh, you have cancer. It's kind of this huge wall that suddenly breaks down and people are shocked by. So in some sense, one thing that occurs to me is that I will run into people people are gonna meet me already knowing and in a sense that's really helpful because then I don't have to worry about that shock factor um, because right. it is something I, and I know we'll talk about this uh, that I have brought up with my with my clients or patients um, I'm in a hospital setting so patients generally um, that I don't always raise it but sometimes I will and and uh, how, in, in a way, how nice that it's already out there, you yeah. know, yeah. and um, I'm also aware, something I mentioned is I, I do a lot of training in my setting, and I'm aware that some of those individuals, I I expect will hear of this, uh-huh. and again, um, how, how helpful for them to know, for them to hear about it, because how else do you kind of say, oh... Come, come you know um uh hi hi good to meet you i have cancer you know it's kind of a <laughs> good it's, it's, it's good to
0: meet you i have cancer and then have the other person say could you spend 3 hours telling me about all the details i mean no you, people people are curious and people are avoidant i think probably yeah, yeah. i mean i haven't had cancer but you know you, you you and i talked briefly about like when natalia garcia talked about having lost her child and what a shock that was and how painful that was and how her closest friends who were also mothers of two-year-olds, mm. how she noticed that they didn't know what to say to her. And so she felt like she needed to break the ice sometimes. And she ended up, as you know, because we read it on the podcast, uh, an amazing, inspiring letter to her mommy friends, as she called it, uh, to tell them how to behave, you know, how to approach her and said, please approach me. Please, when I come to your house, don't hide the photographs of your children that are on your refrigerator. I mean, don't do that. I mean, I've got to cope with things as they are. So I'm sure we'll get into that kind of stuff too. But I want to ask you one other thing just while we're on this. Like I said, I had no idea where this would go, but now we're already somewhere. I thought it was really interesting that in the same conversation I had with you last weekend about just the whole thing is that in the same conversation, at one point you were saying, I have a really bad diagnosis. And you also said, I have a sympathetic diagnosis Mm. compared to what some other people have. And I wonder if you could say that, because I think that was pretty interesting, especially when you consider that I've also interviewed Andrea Rosenhaft with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder.
1: Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, you know, cancer is one of those things that um, when people find out you know in the, in the work setting it gets complicated it's a more complicated thing in a more social setting in a more typical setting um people hear of this diagnosis and you get showered with um people wanting to rush in wanting to help in different ways mm. um wanting to uh you know um uh, whether it's offering rides or you know when the original surgeries were happening bringing meals and those kinds of things mm. uh, there's There's all kinds of groups around the country. Uh, Family members will, a family will lose someone to cancer and they'll start a foundation and then they'll create a weekend retreat and they'll, or they'll create um, uh, an organization for uh, yacht captains to take uh, people who are cancer survivors and families out on on Mm -hmm. yachts to have a, a wonderful day. Right. No one's doing this for borderline personality disorder. That's a
0: really good point. Or or
1: any mental illness. Make a will,
0: make a wish foundation, make a wish foundation. Relay for life. You know, all of these things are incredibly sympathetic responses to uh, a
1: life threatening illness. Exactly. Exactly. So, so in that sense, um, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's, in my family, we have we have various kind of running jokes, you know, and and one is the playing the cancer card, you know. I have a son who's uh, applying for college, and and there's the question, you know, does he play it? Does he not play it? Um, and he had one interview, and he did tip the card, in a in a context that where he thought it seemed to fit, but it's you know, but playing it is something that brings stuff, you know, right. and. Right, right. I mean, it right bring, but it
0: you and you don't know what it's going to bring. I mean, right. right. When you consider that it took from the time she started thinking about it took, Marsha Linahan twenty five or thirty years to decide to share her diagnosis and her story. Um, if she had cancer that had done her in when she was eighteen years old, she would not have needed to wait for any reason, really, and except just sort of. Avoidance of the pain of talking about it with people or having people go through that, but but it's very different, isn't it? I mean, you it's, could, yeah. it's
1: completely different. And the the place where um, I brought it up when we were speaking was uh, this experience that I've had in different points, particularly earlier on in the diagnosis. I don't, it still comes up now, but not quite as strongly or as frequently, of feeling invisible. You know, when I had the diagnosis. I could be out in public, or I was still, or I was working, or I could go somewhere, and nobody knows, you know. And even now, um, even though I've I've been through a lot of surgery, i I'm reconstructed, uh, dressed, and walking around. No one can tell there's anything going on, and in that sense, it's this invisible thing. I'm carrying this thing, and yeah. nobody knows. And it can feel very isolating. And I've had the experience at different points where being mm-hmm. able to put it out there. Has mm. been this um, uh, th- this tremendous relief that oh now people know now people can see me because this is something that I'm going through, and thinking again about mental illness, and mm. thinking again about borderline personality disorder, and that these individuals are so often completely invisible that if they can kind of pass as not having a problem in the community, or or they do you know we don't know who's dealing with what, but if they feel invisible oh no one knows i'm being tormented and then what if they if people find out then people are going to run away you know because of stigma because of fear because of all these things Right. right so they don't have the option of typically now now our conferences which you mentioned you know those are like one one of the few examples where oh look here we're deliberately um, making this an okay thing to talk about and to and to come in with and mm. be together, but that's uh, but that's uh, such an exceptional fraction of the world, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I know. So, so me being me, part of me doing this podcast, I'm not at this point in my life or for, or at this moment motivated by this need to be seen, and yet I see that as a as a benefit of doing this podcast is I there's I can't imagine how I could be more exposed, you know, unless I go on from here and I continue to do other talking things, which perhaps I'll do. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, um,
0: or, or if you went on to a real interviewer like Rachel Maddow <laughs> or, or Anderson Cooper. And...
1: Well, well, <laughs> when they call, I'll, 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 uh, I'll think about it.
0: That's yes, right. Uh, or Oprah, when she calls you after yes. doing the Lady Gaga interview. Yes, right? yes. That she just did. Yeah. Let me ask you something else. In a way, this is like winding back chronologically, just because, you know, I'm getting to know you, and some people listening to this might actually know you better than me, but I would guess in the long run, most people won't. Could you say a little about where you came from? You know, like, what you, like, like yes. if you were at college, like your son, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, where'd you come from? What do you what yeah. do? You do? What's, what has your life been made up of up to and continuing from, but especially before the cancer diagnosis came into your life?
1: Sure, sure. So, so going all the way back, I'm from New York. I mm-hmm. was born
0: in New York. I hear it uh,
1: in New your York. voice. Yes, okay. I hear
0: it in your voice. My wife's okay. from New York. It, um, isn't, it isn't radical, but it's there. You
1: know? It used to be stronger when I was younger. Really? Okay. But, yeah, definitely. Uh, but I, I'm the younger of uh, two boys. Mm-hmm. Um I was uh in a um middle class, lower middle class uh family um in New York. Uh we moved around some. We actually made a major move. We lived wow. in uh Israel for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um I'm from a family that divorced uh mm-hmm. and went in different directions ultimately after quite a business. Uh, My mother and I came back to the United States. So Mm -hmm. I was a younger child. And then for quite a while, I was, I was sort of an only child uh, with not much contact. Because your Um, brother didn't come back. Your brother stayed. Yeah, my brother stayed uh, where he is now uh, with his family. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, my uh, parents both remarried. My father had two more sons. So I have younger brothers. Uh, Mm -hmm. They eventually came to the United States. So so in this country, I've become an older brother um, and have have positive relationships with my three brothers. We're not terribly close, but positive relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In uh, high school, uh, back in New York, um, I was when I uh, first got interested in psychology, got very fascinated uh, Hmm. by that. And, and it, my plan from that point was to go on and study psychology and wow. be a psychologist. It was pretty early on that did I you really know
0: psychologists didn't... did you know psychologists?
1: I had met one- i guess um, uh, I had met one psychologist at that point when I realized that's what I wanted to do and uh, there's an irony there in that the psychologist was back in israel when my parents were already having trouble and already expecting to get divorced and they brought my brother and me to a family therapy with a psychologist and we met once or twice and it was really not very pretty um i still have memories of of my my parents not being able to quite get along at that time Mm -hmm. and um and then when uh, they were going through their divorce, my parents, and custody issues, and we're still in Israel, and um, and that was upsetting. Uh, my mother once brought me back to that same psychologist. Mm-hmm. I met with him once, and it was to talk about the fact that I was unhappy about my circumstance. And in that one meeting, his, his conclusions were, well, that kind of matches the circumstance, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but How- it wasn't really therapy, but that was kind of the experience. Um, so somewhere I must have tucked that away. I don't think I thought much about that directly, but somewhere I must have tucked that away. Uh, I, had a, I have an aunt who um, is now retired in Florida, uh, who I loved, who was a clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that was also there somewhere, although I didn't think social work. I knew it was psychology. Yeah. Somehow.
0: And did you major in psychology in college?
1: Um, yes, yeah, sort of. I, um, I started, I went to one year in um, Binghamton University okay. uh, where I was a psychology major, but I had already had an offer to go to Cornell. Yeah. And my major uh, was gonna be human development and family studies, which is what I did, which mm. had a deal for New York residents. You could take, go to that school and get that major but I was basically a psychology major there. Mm. I spent a lot of time in psychology Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: went straight to graduate school in psychology. Oh, you went straight to grad school. So I was pretty young, uh, went to uh, University of Kentucky. Uh, That's where I met my wife. Um, Mm -hmm. My other interest along with psychology, my my hobby was uh, theater and musical theater. And that went to singing and choruses. And, um, in, and I did that through undergraduate and continued in graduate school. And when I was taking voice lessons and uh, singing, I met my wife. She was a voice major. Um, Seth,
0: I can't believe I didn't know this. Because well, uh, who would. With, all, with all of my DBT songs that I've written and perform in different places, if you and I do a training or something together, would, would you sing?
1: Uh, if I was doing with you, absolutely. All right. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I got Kelly Kerner to sing at a training where she <laughs> didn't know it was coming, and then she agreed to sing because before she was a psychologist, I don't know if you wouldn't. It's a little-known fact about Kelly Kerner, is she would go around making money by singing at weddings. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, she has I, a great voice.
1: <laughs> I had no idea. Ain't no idea. Yeah. Wow.
0: And, no, and but if we, if we
1: do a training, you're on.
0: <laughs> all right, all right, good. Well, we'll have to do a couple new songs, too, because that's expected of all performers. I mean, you need new songs, right? So we'll do that.
1: <laughs> good. Um, when you so, anyway, so 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 my wife and I um, came to Connecticut. I came for internship. Kept doing, uh, she and I kept performing in shows and whatnot as I was an intern and a postdoc. Oh. Uh, she and I sang with um, Connecticut Opera. Uh, and the opera chorus uh, so so music was is a big part of my family oh wow and and in there um we have two children uh they are um our daughter is 19 our son just turned 17. um our daughter's a sophomore and um and that's that's oh and we're and another uh piece is that when we um came back to connecticut we got very active in the jew in the local jewish community where we've got very active in our synagogue we raised our children there we are um not really um spiritual people in a in a theological sense but we have a love for uh tradition and ritual and and community, and we found community there. Mm-hmm. So our, our mm-hmm. friends and our community in Connecticut have always been either in the music and theater um, area, performing, mm-hmm. or else, uh, and, or else in, in our Jewish circles. Mm-hmm. In most of kind of where our people, where we tend to find our people.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, at another point in all of these three hours, I think, well, I wanna get back to among all the ways you coped with cancer have been coping with cancer and still cope with cancer, what spiritual elements, you know, uh, either either secularly spiritual or spiritually spirit or religiously spiritual. um, Because DBT has its own spiritual elements without having to sign on to any particular religion.
1: Yeah, I would say that I would say that uh, if we go there, you know, 99.9, you know, of it a percent would be the the more that secular D B T mindfulness. There is a spiritual piece, certainly. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, but the the, in, the exception piece, I think, on that more formal religious part, you know, one thing again, this kind of sympathetic disease um, is, um, I have had so many different people or groups pass on to me oh, we, we pray for you in this church and, oh, you're on this, um, you know, there's, there's, um, uh, in Jewish, certain Jewish services, there's acknowledging the the sick and praying for wellness for the sick. And, and, and my name, you know, people have shared that they personally have prayed or this group had prayed. And it's, it's beautiful. And it, and, um, and I feel the, the, uh, an appreciation for this communal community aspect mm-hmm. I don't really attach that to a to a god per se or a or a divine power mm-hmm. but I do feel a spirituality around this notion of people um kind kind of um like uh a uh what's I'm blocking on it. I'm a little bit tired, which I get in the evenings. By the way, by the way, uh, uh, incidentally, when we spoke, it was in the morning. By evening, I'm a little more. I I, I do really? wear down. Yeah, but although, which is okay. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm I'm blocking on on the kind of prayer, uh, the um the may you be happy, may you be healthy. Uh, what am I looking for? What's the words I'm looking for? The what? Or the prayer? uh
0: the you're looking for. The wrong prayer is coming the to heart, uh,
1: it's On the tip of my tongue.
0: Um, this is this is a, this is like embarrassing to the extreme. Is it? Mean, it's terrible. Both of us uh, now. I do this. I do this, I do this with a sangha
1: like every other week. I yeah, mean, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm. I'm not. I'm um, not gonna. I'm not. Everyone, gonna, everyone sh-
1: listening to this is gonna. It's everyone else right knows.
0: I know. <laughs> I know. You know. And here's what's even worse. I just thought of the word Trump. I, I'm. I'm not gonna trump you. Uh, by remembering right now, but I, I know exactly. It's what it going to pop up. One of
1: us is going to call it out in about two minutes. That's right. Five minutes. That's right. Hey, um,
0: a question. You, you were at University yes. of Kentucky. Remind me, because you told me at one point in time, and I forget exactly the nature, you encountered Cindy Sanderson? I
1: did. At that point or after well, that? Well, so I, I, I encountered Cindy Sanderson at the University of Kentucky. She had already left. I don't know if she was on internship when I got there or she had just finished internship, but, but she was a few years ahead of me. I see. Uh, so yeah, so I didn't, so I, so we weren't students at the same time. Um, however, um, I went there because uh, to study personality disorders um, Tom Whittaker was and still is there. And there, yeah, was, yeah. there was, you know, so to really dive into in an academic right. way, right. understanding personality disorders, it was, a, it was a great match for me. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to look at personality disorders uh, clinically, and, and that was right around the time that Marsh's work had come out. I, I started graduate school in 92. And so when I was in my, in my practicum, um, and was looking for well what options are there for, for working with personality disorders? Someone said, "Oh well, there's this new thing that just came out. Take a look at this right And um, I the supervisors I had and I really were not comprehending what we were looking at. and I was trying and I was doing things, but it was bad. It was I'll use a judgment. it was it was certainly wasn't effective right right. Um, and then, as I was trying to sort out what this was, uh, for whatever reason, um, Cindy came back and did a one-day DBT training. Oh. And um, and suddenly, I was hearing someone talk about this and, and frame this and um, demonstrate uh, mindfulness uh, and, and, and have us practice in ways that suddenly... Um, uh, made more sense, and there was it, it, you know. I got to taste a little bit of what are we actually talking about here, right? So uh, it was very significant, it was very yeah. significant,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I, I encountered her once or twice after that. I was, but I was very aware of her, yeah. I was, you know, I was aware of, of, um, uh, if you know anything that she wrote, I would notice, you know, I would have yeah. an eye out
0: yeah well you know i i certainly neglected in the uh in the opening introduction i realize now that um on top of everything else i said about you professionally that in november you won this award
1: uh
0: with the international society for improvement and teaching of dbt is it dbt and you won the award which is only given every two or three years there's probably only seven or eight people that have gotten it and it's uh it's the Cindy Sanderson outstanding educator award in DBT internationally and so it's like so cool that that came back around to you um,
1: it, it, it really added a lot uh it, it makes it um very significant very poignant um i i also had uh you know a very strong memory i think i mentioned to you of i was present when you received the first Cindy Sanderson educator award ah. and and uh, it, that was a very moving um, mm. uh, experience to be mm. there when you got that award. So, mm. so for me, th- there really isn't a higher honor.
0: Oh, that's uh, so great! Yeah. You know, and and yours is a higher honor than mine. Yours is more legit because <laughs> I I I was one of the two founders of the organization. For so for me to get that award is like there must have been a lot
1: of conflict of interest going on. So, you know. <laughs> It's I, I'm going to push past, I'm push past <laughs> the, the I'm, I am not going to validate the invalid in any way, shape, or form. Okay.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Now, look,
0: my next question is really, um, so you now live in Connecticut, in New, and I mean, you, you work in New Haven, at Yale New, Yale New Haven Hospital. You live, as you told me last time, you know, 30 minutes outside of New Haven. You have a 19-year-old a and a 17-year-old host. So when you were diagnosed, they were uh, 13 and 11. Yeah. Something like that, close yeah. to that, right? And uh, a boy and a girl. And the boy is now trying to get into college. The girl's already a sophomore at college. Yeah. And, um, okay. And so there you were, you're going along. And what, hap- what started to happen that gave you a clue, uh-oh, something might be wrong? Or did it just come up incidentally in a, in a laboratory examination or something?
1: Uh, no, no, it was um, about a year uh, before the diagnosis. So going one, more, one year earlier than that, I started to develop chronic pain in my um, uh, upper uh, back on the right side and also on my uh, chest on the right side. Hmm. um started to get um, uh, uh, these kind of terrible, not like experiences and in the front, um, uh, there was also, I, I try to remember when it started, at some point it turned into these kind of shock experiences, kind of like a shooting, uh, pain would occur, and that that was kind of mysterious, it came on, I couldn't figure out. Something's happening with the sound. Are you are you hearing me okay?
0: No, yeah, okay. yeah, there is something okay. happening. So, okay. Somebody is not I, muted. Okay. I think they muted. I think okay.
1: they okay. okay. So I I started to have this this chronic uh pain, this daily uh almost continuous pain and then sometimes it would get worse and um uh for a while I didn't know if if I I didn't know what was going on. Um Around the same time, my uh, wife unfortunately had um, uh, shingles. Uh, she had a pain thing going on.
0: Oh, that can be so. Terrible. Yeah.
1: So yeah, she really. I mean, she got through it, but 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 um, uh, she was less able to take care of the 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 kid, the cooking, and or, or part things that she would do more normally. Mm-hmm. She was kind of laid out. So I was having this pain. I'm kind of ignoring it. It's getting worse. She starts getting better. She starts recovering. I start seeing doctors. I start making appointments after probably about three months of kind of mm-hmm. going through this. And um, uh, it was very mysterious, but they um, they noticed that one of my ribs was a little bit dislocated. It was kind of not quite in place.
0: Were you thinking cancer at that point?
1: No, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, no, they noticed this rib was dislocated. Um, uh, they say it's unusual, but it can happen. They put me in physical therapy, saw a physical therapist for quite a while um, who would who would try different things, and it would seem like, well, maybe that's a little better, but then it wasn't. Um, I started seeing different doctors trying, um, uh, saw a um, uh, chiropractor at one point, um, you know, trying different things. And... Um, uh, Oh, and then I saw a physiatrist, like a sports medicine kind of doctor, Uh, different people kind of trying this. Meanwhile, uh, the pain did start turning into this shooting pain that would sometimes occur that really became debilitating in that um, uh, if I was driving, it seemed that the way I was sitting would push on something in some way. And I could get these like shocks that got severe to the point that i would have to pull over if it started if it was like really shooting it wasn't it was intermittent but i got to points where i didn't i couldn't focus on the road because of what was what i was being hit with and and then there was a point where um coming home from work i ended up pulling over and i wasn't sure if i could get home wow Um, the the um uh, I had started uh, consulting and or training with behavioral tech. I actually uh, did my first um, intensive. Uh, it wasn't an issue. I was having the pain, but it wasn't a really big issue during the part one. Mm. But the part two was when things were really getting out of control. Mm. And, um, mm. and I did that with uh, Tony um, uh, DeBose.
0: DeBose, yeah.
1: And so so, you know, I was... I did. I, I we went back and forth, but I wasn't sleeping really at that point. Uh, and then uh, f- the uh, physiatrist um, uh, finally said, "Okay, let's let's uh, let's get an MRI. Let's see what's happening. You know, let's see if there's something going on here." So,
0: from the beginning of symptoms until you got an MRI, how long was that? Uh,
1: that was almost a year. Wow. That, that was about a year. Yeah. So you um,
0: still didn't have a diagnosis.
1: No. Well, it was, it was a, a dislocated rib. Okay.
0: Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, oh. and it was really, really unclear. And then when they, uh, when we got it imaged, uh, then it was suddenly obvious that there was something else going on that underneath the rib was a tumor and the tumor was, um, in the, on the spine kind of toward the inside in the upper and the thoracic spine. And, and it was right kind of behind that rib. So the rib sticking out a little bit in the back, you can't see anything of the tumor because it's on the underside.
0: Right, right.
1: right. Um, so the tumor was, um, it, it was, it was kind of an odd shape, but it was kind of three centimeters by at the longest, I think about six or seven centimeters, kind of going along the rib, but mostly on, on the uh, vertebra. Um, and at that point, um, my wife and I were kind of terrified. I'm kind of um,
0: terrified. Yeah,
1: you know. Yeah, I was just what, about to comment that you you've been
0: you've been living with this story for so long, but then you, when you tell it, I think, holy shit! I mean, exactly. If I if shit, learned right. that, if I learned that after thinking I had a dislocated rib and other things, which is bad enough, oh my god, it would yeah, be like what's that. that
1: thing and this bizarre-looking thing. I got to see the thing. It's just this kind of weird mushroom-like. What is this like odd creature going on over there? um and um one possibility now it still wasn't clear was this cancer it was this could be a cancerous thing this could be a benign tumor but there was some kind of tumor there um and that led me to uh start to see a um to see an orthopedic surgeon um and uh the orthopedic surgeon was not sure you know is this cancer or not but we'll get a biopsy either way he was already talking surgery Mm. you know that's something we're gonna have to get out of there one way or another Mm. um but that was uh uh it was it was uh one mri another mri i think about two days later because they do it without contrast but then they do it with contrast to see it better somehow um and then it was about a week later Uh, were I think a few days later of doing a biopsy and then almost a week later uh, getting the, here's the diagnosis. In the meanwhile, um, I work in a, I work at a university. I've got access to medical journals. I'm searching, I'm looking, I'm looking at different kinds of, you know, orthopedic spine, you know, diagnostic Articles and chapters and I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm I'm a psychologist So I'm looking at pictures that superficially look like what I've got trying to figure is this that or You know the other not, you know, so I probably saw about um, 10 different your 12 different Diagnoses floating around some cancerous some not um, One thing that happened around this time um, I, I was by the way very open one thing I I did even at that time. Is uh, I was on Facebook. I have you know some security settings on my Facebook, so it's not a public Facebook. Um, But we were kind of freaking out, and I just went ahead and put this on the Facebook. Hey, here's you know I called my my parents. You know, hey, this thing's going on. But for most of kind of putting the word out, you know, kind of letting anyone know, I put it there. Somehow, it seemed very clear to me that letting our kind of community, letting friends know we're going through something, was a good idea. Um, it was a, it was really an unusual thing for me to do. I, I haven't been somewhere. You know, the Facebook was a, a place to mostly post about the kids, so the grandparents can see them, and you know, right? Not a, not a big poster. You know, I would right. look and see, but right. I wouldn't post much, right? Right. But I did post this. Yeah. Um, you know, have this thing, gotta have a biopsy, gotta figure out what it is. I would just kind of put all that in there.
0: But that's interesting about you, Seth, that you that you went in that direction. It's not like you're usually a public person about your personal life, Is that doesn't sound like. But you, something in you reached for community. Yes. Something you reached for social connection, for, you know, whatever that would bring. Um, yeah. I think, you know, and when I've done these other interviews, with people facing uh, really catastrophic events or things in their lives, um, this is always where in DBT. People focus so much on behavior and and actions and what you can do about your emotions, all of which is incredibly helpful. But you know, there's an underestim there's an under uh, what do you call it under emphasis under, under uh. on just reaching out to social connections. Which, of course, everybody would agree is a good idea. But I actually, the more I do these kind of interviews with people, this comes up. Two things come up now that I think of it over and over again. And you've already brought one of them up in your own way, which is humor. Mm. Humor, which is not a listed skill in DBT, but actually it's huge. It's uh, it's humor and then also socializing or reaching for social support.
1: Humor is one that I've been thinking about a lot in preparation for this because humor has been a huge piece of the coping with this. And, um, you know, and and in DBT, you know, there's some things you can find in DBT, but they are understated or they are kind of minimized. You know, humor is, as best I can figure, shows up in the, the distract, the wise mind accepts distracting with Emotions, you know, or maybe I mean, you're kind of uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You try and, to get a, a huge something going with that's funny rather than tragic or rather than I, sad. I, I yeah. get,
1: you know, because I definitely there's a lot of you know I, for my own coping, my family's coping. Um, uh, when when I've been been uh, interacted within the cancer community, and I do have various connections that I've made at different times. I'm mean, still very active um, in the cancer community. In person, it, it's amazing how much laughter there is and joking around when you put a bunch of cancer patients together. Um, it's right. remarkable. Right, right, um, right. right. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. I agree. The humor I see is I, those two things you just said. Um, yeah. Oh, and then also the the easy manner part, which I know we're going to talk about in terms of, of giving it, you know, talking to other people about it. Yeah. Humor has been huge um, yeah. for lightening up. Yeah. Uh, being able to talk about, you know, painful so, things.
0: So you got this diagnosis, and after all that time, and now, of course, in one way it, things made sense, but it, it was, I assume, terrifying just to begin yeah. with. And then, your t- your fear must not have gone down when you learned the nature of your tumor.
1: Yeah. Now, now there was one really interesting kind of twist. There's so many twists and turns, but there was one that was really kind of fascinating from kind of coping a coping perspective. Yeah. When, when I had the tumor and I had the kind of the scare, I also uh, shared it with work. I also told my supervisors, you know, hey, this thing's going on. I'm getting, you know, because also I, you know, had to get MRIs and be out for this and whatever. Um, and I had um, one uh, supervisor, uh, an esteemed psychiatrist, he's retired now, uh, William Sledge.
0: Oh, I Uh, knew him well. I knew him well when
1: I was at Yale. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, he was, he was the, um, uh, chief of psychiatry at the hospital. And, um, and I happened to have a meeting with him and, uh, shared about, you know, we shared about what was going on. And, um, he gave me this theory about, um, that, you know, the way the, you know, mechanically, if we think about the way the rib is kind of rubbing against the vertebra, that that could create something and that would almost be like a callus. And he really looks at this and he, he, you know, he's not a, you know, a specialist in this area, but what right. he sees is a benign kind of thing that occurred through this frictional process and da da da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had this uh, wonderful sense of relief and I shared it with my wife and the two of us, got to have this like relaxed weekend, you know, cause I think oh. it was on a Friday and we both knew, you know, like this, we don't, you know, he doesn't necessarily know what he's talking about, Right. but here's this theory that something else could be happening. Right, right. And um, and from right. that weekend and then the days we were waiting for the results and we got it, when we got the results, it was cancer. Um, and it's a bone cancer uh, that I can label. Um, we weren't shocked. We, we were scared. We were aware this could be very well could be cancer. Yeah. Um, but there was this really remarkable way of not getting ahead of ourselves um, by um, uh, getting this message that kind of we don't really know, you know, who knows. You know what it is. So it was a really remarkable thing that we went from kind of a panic mode to not being so panicked. And then when we did get hit with it, that was a huge blow. But we kind of already had the shock from the first place of seeing the tumor and and struggling with all the, you know, is that cancer? Is that cancer? You yeah, know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: Well, okay, it is. You know. So it was a, you know, it was a, a painful. Um, there was a shock and you know kind of a a, a numbed but in some ways less so than the first hearing about it and jumping to, yeah, what is that?
0: Yeah, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. It's, you know, I think when you start to, when you, this is one stage of everything you've been through, was first learning your diagnosis or first learning or first thinking, maybe I have something, somebody says you have a tumor, that's already step one now. Oh, a tumor, that's a different idea. Of course, Will Sledge gave you a little relief, saying, "Well, maybe a tumor is caused by this rubbing of bone, and the oh. bone, the bone osteoclasts, which are, which right. create bone, created a big bone tumor, which is benign or something." So I understand, but I think this a lot of people go through this with their whether they're whether they're they're getting a, di- a, a diagnosis of some form of cancer or leukemia or or d- diabetes or uh, or what's how bad is their asthma. Is this asthma that might kill them? Uh, So many, a neurological condition, like a lot of people my age uh, who are forgetting things, oh no, do I have Alzheimer's? Uh, Do I have a dementia or something? Or is this just normal? I mean, you go, and then you go back and forth. There's a whole period of turmoil that's really hard to tolerate just there. And then when you land on a diagnosis, you hope it's not going to be a bad one. Uh, So you're you're looking for a way out. Because it's yeah. sort of like cancer is stalking you.
1: Yes. Yeah. But he felt so terrible when it turned out to be cancer. He was, he felt so, wow. and I had to let him know he gave us such a gift. That's so <laughs> nice scary. of you to tell him that. I mean, yeah. he's a, as I remember,
0: well, it's a long time ago, but he was not, Chairman, then But he was the head of education, and he was uh, a very decent person too. Mm. I'm sure that he was totally well intended. But you know, people say things when they're totally well intended. When you're in potentially on the edge of a cliff in your life, and people say, "Oh, you're not really that close to the edge of the cliff," and you're <laughs> thinking, "Oh, that's nice of you to say," but it's yeah. actually bullshit. I mean, yeah, not that yeah. There's, it, but it it is kind of like false hope. You're looking for it anything was, at that point.
1: It works it, for a moment. It, it, it it was. And we were in, you know, in, in, in DBT, you know, thinking about crisis survival versus reality acceptance. We were in a crisis survival kind of place. We were in a crisis state, you know, it, it, it was a false hope. It was a, you know, but, but we kind of, um, I think it was kind of an adaptive denial. We knew it was, we knew, we knew that there was no truth to oh. what was being said. It was a theory. It was a, it was I, I, one guy's, One psychiatrist A
0: psychiatrist
1: of all things. Right. Who's gonna (laughs) believe a psychiatrist about cancer? Right. And yet, and yet it gave us a story that was helpful at that point. um, that we appreciated. Gave
0: gave you a story. You know, you and I were talking last weekend, we only have a few minutes left. By the way, Mm. somebody wrote in the name of that form of meditation. Of course they did. What is it? Yeah. And and the person who wrote in is somebody you've met before, is Beth McCrave. Oh, I don't know if you know Beth from yeah. So it's meta, meta meditation. Meta meditation. No, there's another word
1: too. Loving kindness. I got it. A
0: loving kindness. Yeah, that's another Thank word. Thank you, for Beth. It. Right.
1: Yes. What I couldn't come up with was uh, a love was a loving kindness prayer. That's right. Loving kindness. There
0: we go. Right. Um, so you, So obviously, we're going to be ending this podcast yeah. with okay. This is the story up to now, and um, and so I just want to ask you, I guess, at the end of that. Um, I got, using this technical term that isn't that helpful, but I'm I'm groping for a term. What 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 kind of dysregulation did this add to what you were going through? I mean, did it add hope because oh maybe this is a cancer somebody can now do something they're going to do, or di- or did was it just purely
1: like oh my god? It it was there was a there was a dropping experience. There was like the floor dropped, of. You know, it it was it was um, it was really kind of a the nightmare has happened. You know, because it was a it was this stretch. You know, we went from this mystery problem that's been going on for a year to oh, who cares about pain? This might be cancer. And by the way, that's been a back and forth over the years between I, I'm in chronic pain, but is pain important? Cancer is actually more important than pain. Oh yeah. Wow. So there was that whole, that was that transition. That's right. Then there was the, the terror of it. And then it was the floor dropping out. Um, and at the same time um, in getting the diagnosis, there was the opportunity to, to notice the possibility of acceptance because before mm-hmm. there it was, it was the only thing to accept was the uncertainty. Mm. And I still, mm. uh, there's a lot of, in, in my world, there's a lot of accepting uncertainty. There's lots of uncertainties to accept. But at, at that point, there was this, um, this horrible thing was labeled and there was both the uh, possibility of studying it, you know, for me to jump back in my journals, which I didn't do immediate. I don't know if I did it on that day or not. I certainly did it quickly, but on that day, there was absolutely noticing I can I can um I can work on radically accepting having this di- having a diagno having a cancer diagnosis because yeah. that that was so far out of the realm of possibility. You know, the tumor being there was so far out of the realm of possibility, yeah. but then getting it is not a benign growth, but cancer was something that I on the day could start making a turn from crisis mode to acceptance.
0: Even with the uncertainty and and accepting the uncertainty of it. And one of the things I'm going to ask you about in more detail next time, which I think is going to be helpful to everybody I know because I still run skills groups and my skills groups. it's every time you teach radical acceptance. What exactly does that mean? And how exactly do you do that? And of course in the manual there's a series of steps now in the second edition of the manual But even after that people are stuck with everyone gets the idea of radical acceptance But oh my god to really get at what it meant to you and how much of that you've had to practice I think I'll ask you next time to you know go over us go over with us in some detail um, that so Um, much as I hate to defer this another 167 hours, we now have to stop for that many hours, uh, before we resume this conversation. (laughs) And, and I want to encourage people who listen or watch to write in any emails you want to give feedback and to, and to throw in questions if you do this within the next week or so, or two, uh, throw in questions that you wish I would bring up. Um, and And also, you can certainly email me at my website where where you get this, some of this, or at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Seth, it, are you open to anybody directly emailing you about any questions?
1: Uh, sure. My email's easy. Uh, Seth period Axelrod at yale period edu. Okay. Thanks for
0: being willing to do that. Yeah, so feel free to write anything. Uh, and, and even if this is after all of these podcasts are done, getting the feedback uh, is really helpful. So we've sort of laid the framework by getting to the point where you are, are you know have been diagnosed and now you're beginning to cope with that. And we'll come back and pick up somewhere there along with anything else that comes up in either of our minds in the next week, okay? And thanks, Seth. Bye.